All right, turn your Bibles to Acts 18. This is our third week that we've been looking at difficult people. Some of you have been looking at difficult people for longer than three weeks, but for three weeks in this passage, we've been looking at difficult people. Um, Those of you that are the more reflective, positive thinking types, you tend to deal with difficult people this way. This is the way you think. This is how your internal processes work, all right? You go like this. I'm so thankful for difficult people. I really am. I'm so thankful they're in my life because they've shown me exactly who I do not want to be, (laughs) right? Then there are those of you who are single and you have that passionate romantic streak and when you start thinking about difficult people and dealing with them you and process it internally this way you think I can't wait to be married I can't wait because it's gonna be so great to find that special person that I want to annoy for the rest of my life (laughs) right and then there's those of you that really really get difficult people you get it I mean you know what they're like you know how to deal with them and when you do You are honest and straightforward with them, and you say things like this. People like you are the reason people like me need medication. (laughs) The city of Corinth was filled with difficult people. It was a difficult place for Paul. Remember, he tells us himself in his first letter to Corinthians, he says this. When I came to you, brothers, I was in weakness and fear and much trembling. Why was Paul so weak? Why was he fearful and trembling? I mean, if I'm honest with you, when I read that about Paul, it's utterly shocking to me because it's exactly the opposite that I think Paul would ever, ever be like. I don't think of him that way. I never have thought of him that way. But it's been good for me to think of him this way. Extremely good. Remember, he was opposed and reviled. In other words, he was hated and abused there. Nobody likes to be hated and abused. I mean, words do hurt. Words do break things, not just sticks and bones, sticks and stones, right? Uh, He was also legally attacked there. He was taken to court by force. It was a bold attempt to shut him up and even do worse, probably take his life. That's what they were after. They wanted him to stop. And who were these people that were doing this? Well, we know by now they were the religious people of Corinth, the people that believed the Bible, The people that were believing in God, the people that obeyed the law, the people that went to synagogue regularly, they were the ones. But we also know, Corinth, that there were the irreligious people. And Paul, for the irreligious person, was like a fun Nazi. Why? Well, there are many, many reasons. But at the top of his list, at the top of the Corinthian list, was Paul's different take on sex. This made him extremely unpopular. Corinth, the verb, to Corinthize, you know what it means? Literally, for 500 years, that's why the city was named, to be sexually immoral or addicted. So the whole town literally <laughs> worships sex. And so Paul comes in and he says, I'm going to give you all a different take on sex. I'm going to say stuff like this. I'm going to say you're not supposed to give your body to someone until you're able to give your whole life to them and they to you. In other words, I'm saying to you that, that real sex happens in the context of actually giving up your individual rights and binding yourself to another person in the covenant of marriage before God. That's what real sex is about. He didn't see sex as dirty. He just said, look, Sex is a gift. It's not a commodity. 
It's not to be bought and used in exchange like a commodity. It's a gift from God. It's loaded. It's packed with pleasure. It's packed with power. It's packed with intimacy. And that gets unleashed in a marriage. He's basically saying, listen, folks, it's like a fire that was designed for the fireplace of marriage. You take it out of marriage, you're going to burn everything up. So you can see how that would be very unpopular, right? In a town that was literally addicted to sex. Sex outside of marriage. So I think it's okay. I still think it's okay. I don't know if my wife agrees with me. You can be addicted to sex in marriage. But outside of marriage, right? With people outside. Now, when you put all of this together, and then you read First and Second Corinthians... <laughs> And you get the tone and the manner of it. I mean, we've said this, but it, it's like watching a, I don't know, it's like watching an, an office episode. It's so relationally, socially awkward and uncomfortable. You just want to move on. So I want to welcome you to Acts 18. This is our last time to look at it. It's loaded with spiritual resources, loaded with spiritual resources on how to deal with difficult people. So please stand for the hearing of God's word. John. Acts 18, verse 1 through 22. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth, and he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy and with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them, because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord, together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent. For I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you. For I have many in this city whom are my people. And he stayed a year and six months, teaching the word of the God the word of God among them. But when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal, saying, This man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it is a matter of question about words and names and your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge of these things. And he drove them from the tribunal. And they all seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. But Gallio paid no attention to any of this. After this, Paul stayed many days longer and then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria. And with him are Priscilla and Aquila. At Centre, 
he cut his hair, for he was under a vow. And they came to, the, to Ephesus, and he left them there. But he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined. But on taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills. And he set sail from Ephesus. Then he had landed at Caesarea, Caesarea, and they went up and greeted the church, and then went down to the Antioch. The word of the Lord. Thank you, God. See Johnny, good job, brother. Oh Lord, we ask that you would shine on the page. We ask for that downward action, that downward power that you give, uh, that you perform, that you delight to do. So would you open the scriptures and open our lives at the same time? And we ask this in your name, amen. All right, we've already seen three spiritual resources for dealing with difficult people. Number one was what? God ultimately brings people together, the good and the bad. Number two, God loves difficult people. Number three, uh, the gift of friendship. Now, there's no time to do any review here. I cannot. So if you've missed any of those and you really, really need to have them in order to keep moving on in the book, go on the website. They're there. Today is the fourth and final spiritual resource for dealing with difficult people. What is it? Here it is. You ready? Verse 9, the gift of vision. So let's look at it in verse 9. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you. And no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in the city who are my people. The first thing to notice in this vision is this. The vision is God's response to Paul's fear. This vision is God's gracious, kind, compassionate response to Paul's fear. I mean, Paul is afraid. Nobody likes to be afraid. Those of you that are students of fear know that the fear experience is actually worse than whatever it is that you're fearing. Thus, the famous quote, there's nothing to fear but what? Fear itself, right? Uh, Fear is an overwhelming, uncontrollable, paralyzing, painful, and controlling emotion or feeling. Uh, Technically, in the original language, you know what it's called? A mega emotion. In the original language, it's called an epithume. An epi, an over, mega, dominating, controlling, feeling, or emotion, or desire. Uh, it is something that is overwhelming. It's something you can't control. It's something that actually controls you. It breaks, it breaks the borders of the channel that a river's in and overflows its banks. That's the picture of an epithume. That's the picture of a mega, epi emotion. And Paul is experiencing mega feelings of weakness, trembling, and fear. Remember, he says so himself. Corinthians, when I came to you, I came to you in weakness, trembling, much trembling. I mean, that's even physically, that's coming into the physical reality of your life. So it's an internal, overwhelming sense of fear that impacts you physically to literally tremble. But why? What is Paul so afraid of? As I mentioned earlier, this just baffles me. I, I never thought of Paul this way. But I'm so glad I know him now that way. He actually becomes a real human being more to me. 
I want you to remember what he was really, do you remember just two chapters before the, at the Philippian jail and the earthquake and the core calm we saw displayed there? Supernatural, extraordinary, it was shocking. Everything is going in this direction and he and Silas are literally like in the eye of a hurricane. So what could do this to Paul? Some of it could be a fearful sense of physical danger, possibly even death. I mean, do you see that in verse 9? You have that assurance. No one will attack you or harm you. So maybe there's some of that. But doesn't there seem to be something more at work here, though? I mean, something more powerful, something more personal, something more, I don't know, epic that's hitting and causing him to tremble. Ed Welch is a doctor in counseling psychology, specifically neuropsychology. I have no idea what that means. Uh, and a director of the School of Biblical Counseling in Glenside, Pennsylvania. You know what he says? I think he's nailing it with Paul. He's not saying it about Paul. He's just talking about us. But I think it was about Paul. Listen, he says, we too can encounter enemies that threaten our lives. But more often our enemies are those who threaten things as important to us as life itself. They have the power to both give and take away our reputation, our acceptance, our prestige and our love. He goes on to say, look, low self-esteem isn't so much that I feel bad about myself. It's that I feel bad about myself because I think you feel bad about me. Difficult people do this to us. They have the power to make you feel bad about yourself. Difficult people seem to possess the power to give or take away what seems like life to us. We could call it psychological well-being, to use the terminology today. You know what the Bible calls it? Spiritual well-being. In the Old Testament, the Bible calls it shalom. In the New Testament, the Bible calls it peace. Both mean a life that's complete. Both mean a life that's whole. Both mean a life that's full. Both mean a life that's flourishing, a life that's intact. If it was the psalmist in Psalm 23, he'd say, listen, it's a life that lacks nothing. It's a life of green pastures. It's a life of still waters. It's a life of a restored soul. It's the life of right paths. Here's the point. Difficult people can be seen by us to possess the power to give or take away our well-being. And when they do, we fear them. And they now control us. And they can control us by we withdrawing, by getting bitter, by raging, by not forgiving, paying back. I want you to remember, how did we begin? God's vision is a response to Paul's fear. So let's look at the vision and let's find out the resources that are there. It's obvious all that we're doing is we're again seeing the difficult people provide a lot of difficulties in our life. And again, if you're kind of entering in on this one, you've missed the part where the most difficult person in the world is you. (laughs) 
So before we start looking at the person next to us, the one you're married to or your children or whatever it is, you and I need to know when the scriptures say the most difficult person in all the world, it literally means you're the most difficult person in your life. You are. And I am in my life. Then we move out from there because the Bible doesn't stick its head in the sand. The Bible actually addresses real life stuff. So there are difficult people in life. And if you haven't met them yet, you haven't lived long enough. They're common. Verse 9, and the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in the city who are my people. So after fear, the second thing we've got to notice in this, the second thing is there's nothing new here for Paul. This vision brings no new truth to Paul. This vision is stuff that Paul already knows. I mean, look at it. Do not fear. There are over 500 commands in the Bible of some sort that refer to not fearing. Most of them are in the Old Testament. He knows that. Then you look at keep going. I mean, basically, he's being told to keep going as apostle. He's saying, look, keep going. Fulfill your call. Don't, don't stop preaching the gospel. Keep opening your mouth and speaking the gospel. Keep going. Don't now go full-time into tent making. Keep going in your apostolic call. He already knows that. Paul also already knows that Jesus is with him. At this point in his life, he's already written the book of Galatians. Because remember, that was his first missionary journey. All those churches in Galatia. Well, he's already written to them. You know what he said to them? He said, listen, you know, the life, he's giving you the secret. The life I live in the body. Do you want to know how I live? Man, this is how I live. You want the secret to the Christian life, Paul says? I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That's the Christian life. He already knows Jesus is with him. He already knows that nothing can touch him except what God allows. He knows that God is in control of every aspect of his life. He knows that God's even in control of the doom in his life. And that God is so in control that when the doom and the bad stuff comes, he overrides it. He overmasters it. He's so great that he takes what's bad and what's doomful and turns it into shalom. And turns it into peace in his life. He knows that. He also knows that Jesus is building his church. That last part, I have many in the city who are my people. He knows that. He knows that when Jesus walked on this earth and then he died and he rose, he won. I mean, he won. Game over, it's done, it's finished, it's accomplished. Nothing can stop Jesus. He knows that right now, Jesus, the Lord, the king of the church, is advancing his church. He's building his church. He is actively reaching Jesus, restructuring, redeeming, restoring people's lives. He knows this. He knows that there are sheep that have yet to be gathered. He knows this. And he knows nothing's going to stop Jesus from doing this. Nothing. Paul knows all of this. So what is going on? You know what's going on? Because real Christianity is not unfelt truth. Real Christianity is not abstract truth. Real Christianity is not truth 
disconnected from life. Real Christianity is not unexperienced truth. Christianity, the real kind, is truth made real. It's truth that you commune with. Truth that doesn't pass over you, but truth that literally comes through you. Truth that reaches you and restructures you and restores you and shapes you. Truth that actually instills life and breath. That you breathe truth in like it's the breath of God himself. Truth, Christianity is truth bringing with it, breaking into our life, downward movement. It's truth bringing in shalom to your life. It's truth bringing in peace to your life, wholeness, intactness, fullness, and flourishing into your life. Biblical truth is like a sponge. And that sponge, this truth, is like a sponge. And it's soaked and saturated with the Holy Spirit. Shalom, peace, well-being, and God squeezes it over you. And you get soaked with the Holy Spirit. Saturated with shalom and peace. When this happens, truth is made real to you. You experience it. It's felt incredibly deeply. It becomes transformative in your life and in my life. This is vision. This is the vision. This is what's happening to Paul. This is what's taking place. Because he knows a lot of truth. And you and I know a lot of truth. Or we don't know a lot of truth. But the point is that truth now has got to continually in our life become real to us and continually in our life touch us and make contact with us that we actually commune with the truth as the Puritans would say. They would say that it's not just being clear to the mind, it's actually being real to the heart. That's Christianity. And that's what's happening in this vision for Paul. So the question we've got to ask ourselves now is, well, how does vision happen to us? How does this, this thing that's happening to Paul right now, how does that happen and how does it happen to you continually? Because that seems to be the, it seems to be the tenses of the verb. It seems to be the realities of Paul's letters. You know what he does in Ephesians? He gives you all this theology and there's two prayers in Ephesians. And you know what those two prayers are? All this theology I'm giving, I pray it becomes real to you. I pray that God strengthens you with power in your innermost being so that this Jesus now dwells richly in you. So that seems to be the spirit of it. So how does vision happen to us? The first part's really, really important. Don't miss the role of difficult people. Difficult people, difficult places, difficult life events, difficult internal struggles are used by God to make truth real to us. They're used by God to press it in, to push it in. To drive it in. So the vision of God is a response to Paul's fear. 
So Paul is needy and he's weak and he's broken and he's overwhelmed. He's struggling. He's in pain. He's feeling out of control. He's fearful. And what does that do? It drives him to God. But don't miss this. It drives God to him. Do you see that? We, we miss that part. We know that when we're needy, oh my word, God, where are you? No atheists and foxholes. Where are you? I need you. I'm desperate, right? We get that. But we also, we forget that weakness drives God to us because grace only and always runs what? Downhill. Do you know the Hebrews writer said something? I read it this morning and actually it just took my breath away. It just got done mentioning Samson. And at the end of Samson in the hall of faith, which is, I can't even believe Samson's in the hall of faith, but he's in the hall of faith. And now I really get why he's in the hall of faith. And it says this, literally, they were made strong out of weakness. His hair is cut off. His eyes have been gouged out. He's been humiliated and shamed and beat up by his enemies. He's been dragged and chained into the center of the Philistine god called Dagon. 3,000 people on the roof, 5,000 throughout the courtyards. And he says, just show me where the, the pillars are. And in weakness, he pushes. God drives to you in weakness. Your power, God, is made perfect in weakness. So difficult people, my friends, are a gift from God. Notice the second thing, how vision comes through Jesus' words. You see that at the beginning of verse 9? And the Lord said one night to Paul in a vision. Do you get the connection between said and vision? Do you see that? They're meant to be connected. You see, the vision, the truth made real is happening through what Jesus is saying. So you get the sense in, in Romans, Paul puts it this way. He wants it to be a little more clear. He's experiencing it in verse 9. I think he's writing about it in Romans when he says, listen, folks, faith, it comes by hearing and hearing the words of Christ. That's how it happened to me. That's how it continually happens to me. So the gospel message, the words about the worth and work of Jesus are the sponge. Soaked and saturated with the Holy Spirit is the good news about Jesus. And that sponge God squeezes on you and it unleashes life on you. Shalom, peace, well-being. This should drive us to the Bible. I mean this. This is like putting wind in your sails to get to the Bible as fast as you can. Because in the Bible, the sponge... The words, the good news about Jesus gets squeezed on you and you get soaked and saturated because the primary movement is downward. So in the Bible, Jesus shows up. In the Bible, God shines on the page. In the Bible, heaven is unleashed. In the Bible, ears and eyes and hearts are opened. Lydia. In the Bible, shalom starts coming and visiting you. In the Bible, lives are reached and restructured and put back together again. 
So what should this do to us? This should drive us to the Bible. In other words, we would come alive again in the Bible, again and again and again. So the Bible's where all the action and the power is. The Gospel's where all the life and power of God is. I mean, it's as simple as stepping in front of a locomotive. Can you do that? Can I do that? When you are desperate and you can't even, you're, you're in a difficult place, you're with difficult people, you don't even know what's going on, can you? Can you just step in front of a locomotive? Can you go to your Bible and just open it up and start reading? Now, we should read the Bible regularly, right? And now I'm going to give you all kinds of plans on how to do that. No, forget about all the plans. Forget about all the memorization stuff. Forget about, throw it in the trash because you're never going to do it and it's just going to make you feel worse. Seriously, forget about the reading plans. I mean, if you're that kind of person and it really gets you going, great. But if you're not, don't feel bad about it. I, I follow Dr. Hannah's advice. If you set your goals low enough, you'll hit them every time. So the goal is to set your goals low enough so you hit them. So get to the Bible, read the Bible. And so here's my plan. It's very, very simple. You take one thought unit a day in the Bible. So you know what that means if you're in letters, which is written for propositions. How's the one thought unit structured? A paragraph. Can you read a paragraph? Can I read a paragraph a day if I'm in the letters? I can do that. I can do that while I'm eating my cereal. You can do that. And not only that, then let's say you, you get tired of the letters. You want to go to stories, which is most of the Bible. You read a narrative. What's a one unit and a narrative? It's one story. It's not reading three stories in a row, which might be in one chapter. The parable of this, the parable of that, the parable of this, the parable of that. Chapter two. By the time you're done, you don't remember any of it. But if you read one of them, one segment, one story, I think it'll be more meaningful to you. When you get to wisdom literature, you want to read one wise idea at a time. That might be two sentences. Wisdom literature goes in parallelism, so it might be one A and B, and that might be it. If you've got a lot of strength and you want to keep going, keep going. But if you start focusing on one thought unit at a time, you're actually going to do it. And when you start stringing together three and four thought units, it overwhelms you. You're never going to remember it. it will, you will not think about it the rest of the day. You get to the Psalms, you do one poetry unit. That's usually one psalm. Some of them can be long. Psalm 119. Well, there are many units in there. You can break that thing up. All of them are saying the same thing differently. The word of God is. So read what it is in 1 through 3. Read what it is in 4 through 8. Read, so you get the point? Now, if something grabs you in these one thought units, think about it. And practice the reality. You're thinking about it before God. It's not just kind of done to yourself. You're talking to yourself and you're thinking and you're working things out with God. Think about it. Pray about it. Okay? All right. So how does vision happen to us continually? Well, difficult people are going to come in your life. And the Bible is where Jesus shows up. Lastly, and this is the most important one of all, when you know and you feel deep in your bones the heart of the vision in verse 9. For I am with you. There's the shalom. There's the peace. There's your well-being. 
Now, do you notice that? For I am with you. Do not be afraid, Paul. It's not turn inside yourself and fix yourself. The answer is, I'm with you. The answer isn't looking in. The answer isn't even trying to work up. The answer is someone else. Completely someone else. I am with you. In that statement of I am with you is everyone's hope, everyone's dream, everyone's confidence, everyone's peace, everyone's shalom, everyone's well-being. It's there. So you don't have to worry about you. And you don't have to worry about getting you somewhere. It's, it's not even in here. It's there. Outside of me. Jesus was with Paul. Jesus is with you. And the question is, how do you know this? How do you and I, messed up people, really, really know this? You know how we know? This is how we know. When facing the rawest rejection there is, and when I mean by raw rejection, I'm talking about original rejection. I'm talking about source rejection. Difficult people are not raw rejection. Difficult people are not source rejection. Difficult people are not original direct, original rejection. They're derivative. They're imitators. They're actually false. But when Jesus is facing the rawest rejection there is, and it puts the difficulty It puts the rejection of difficulty, it's not even in the same category. When he is facing the rejection of God himself, he did not leave you. He stayed on the cross. He did not go anywhere. So when he says, I am with you, man, he's with you to the bitter end. When he says, never will I leave you, Paul, never will I forsake you because I did not leave you on the cross. I'm in it and I'm with you. Difficult people But the greatest resource of all is that Jesus was actually rejected so that you never will be. That is a spiritual resource. You can hang everything on. Amen.